May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In 1987, a 20-year-old woman working at a laundromat in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was attacked by a man. He tied her up and put her in the restroom, left, came back, and took her to a, um, a remote location where he physically assaulted and violated her. After a couple of years, um, a man named Arvin McGee was convicted of this crime and sentenced to 298 years in prison. His, um, his conviction, Mr. McGee's uh, conviction, was based upon the, um, the, the victim's identification of him from a photographic lineup. But she didn't actually pick him out the first time she picked out somebody else. And in the second photographic array, she identified Mr. McGee. Um, he continued to maintain his innocence and um, you know, tried to, uh, to have a vigorous defense. His first trial ended in a mistrial. His second trial ended in a hung jury. His third trial, he was convicted of the crime and sentenced to 298 years. About 13 years later, the Innocence Project um, took his, uh, the, the forensic evidence from that crime, ran it against his DNA, and excluded him as a possible suspect. The Tulsa County um, uh, Prosecutor's Office did the same thing. They concluded the same, that Mr. McGee could not have been the one who committed the crime. He spent 14 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. In fact, a couple years later, uh, the state of Oklahoma discovered that in processing um, their DNA that they already had the person in prison who had committed another similar crime, and he was later convicted of that crime that Mr. McGee had served uh, 13 or 14 years for. The Innocence Project has exonerated 350 people so far in the United States, including a couple dozen of people who were on death row. But for every um, Arvin McGee or Samuel Scott or Roy Craner, um, there's a Ted Kaczynski or uh, a Ted Bundy or um, a Jeffrey Dahmer that's in prison. People who are serving uh, time for crimes they, in fact, actually did commit. Not long ago, I was watching Discovery Channel, and they had the world's worst prisons. It was chilling to watch. I mean, just one of these things that the people who were just some of the most violent people in the world, and you couldn't help but to think, thank God for prisons, because the only thing that's keeping the rest of the world safe are the walls and the, 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 the chains and whatever around these prisons. I mean, just because one person was wrongly convicted doesn't mean that every person was wrongly convicted, right? I mean, we wouldn't want all of a sudden judges to say, well, one person was wrongly convicted, therefore everybody must be wrongly convicted. Let's let them all go. I mean, that would be, that would be unthinkable, wouldn't it? It would be horrifying to imagine that, um, that all of a sudden every prison was going to be open and every convicted criminal set free. But what if, just spitball with me this morning, what if we had an antidote. It would be given to everybody who was in prison, and it could change the most hardened criminal into the kindest soul. I mean, what if we could do that? What if that were possible? And, and, and everybody's like, sure, that's not going to work. I know, but what if, just for the sake of argument, it could happen? What if hardened criminals could be changed into kind and compassionate individuals? Oh, you know, get me that antidote, right? Well, you, could, you could really change the world from this. 
But in a sort of sense, this is what's happening in Luke's gospel. Jesus goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, um, a building not tremendously unlike this one. He goes in and um, he's the lay reader for the day. Not unlike our lay readers we had today, right? So uh, 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 he gets up and somebody hands him, you know, they hand him the scroll. He opens up the scroll and he reads Isaiah chapter 61. He reads the text from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Liberty to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Israel has been in prison. It's been in prison for a long time, the people of Israel. And, and to understand what Jesus is, is about to say with this text is to have to understand what Isaiah was saying about this text, right? Jesus stands up and he reads the Old Testament lesson. They didn't call it the Old Testament lesson because there was only the Old Testament. They, he read the Hebrew scripture lesson for the day. And this is the text that he reads, Isaiah chapter 61. It always baffles me as to why this text, the Old Testament lesson, isn't Isaiah 61 instead of Nehemiah, but we'll leave that for a moment. Here he stands up and he reads from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Word for word, this is what the prophet says. And Jesus is saying to Israel, that time that Isaiah wrote about is upon us. But again, to understand this, you have to understand what it is to be Israel, to be the people of God, to be those who have, um, who have this belief that God is at work with their country, with their people, in a way that is unique and special in the world. That they are the people of God, and that God has delivered them, that He is going to deliver them. You know the story. Creation, fall, and what happens after the, the, the man and the woman eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, good and evil? Uh, the, the, there's this little um, talk from the Lord, right? These curses on the man, woman, and serpent. And then what happens? They are exiled from the garden, right? They are moved out of the garden. This is the story of Israel again. So the people of God are, are formed from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They go into, to, uh, uh, you know, into Egypt. They're they exodus into the promised land and they live in the promised land until such a time as the Lord says, you have abandoned the covenant and you are going to be exiled, right? And, they, and this happens. The Babylonians swoop in, they destroy the city of Jerusalem, they level the temple to the ground and they take people who live there and they exile them to, to Baghdad, to ancient Babylon, and they oppress them. And the nation of Israel seems to be bereft of God's compassion. That God has left them. That he, has, he has abandoned them. And this goes on for hundreds of years. There's no self-rule in Jerusalem again. The Babylonians. And then along come the Persians. And then the Greeks. And then the Syrians. There's a little bit of a reprieve from them. But then the Romans. And it's hundreds of years of living under Gentile oppression. And Jesus shows up and he says to them, today's the day. Deliverance comes today. And everybody hears. Everybody's ears perk up. Those pesky Romans are going to be gone. 
We're going to get rid of them. It'll be like the good old days of David and Solomon, where the country is strong again and rich again. Listen, it's good news to the poor. Liberty to the oppressed. A Roman soldier could come up and compel any person to carry his pack for a mile. So you're going about your business on your way to the market or whatever, and a, and a Roman soldier comes up and gives you his pack, you have to carry that. No more oppression like that. No more tax collectors. No more the, the, the nonsense that these Romans are put upon us. That's what they hear. That's not what Jesus means. Not at all what he means, is it? It's not the oppression of Rome that is the, the, the troubling thing. Nor was it really the, the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Syrians or anybody else. The oppression is the oppression that comes from the prison of sinfulness, of human rebellion against God. This is a time for it to be gone, for it to be released. And he sits down. When, when you taught in ancient Israel, you didn't stand in a pulpit like I am here. You sat down. And so there's a chair, you know, down here in the center. And Jesus sits down. And everyone knows that that is the equivalent of walking into the pulpit, right? He sits down. And all eyes, Luke says, are fixed upon him. And he begins to say that today, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Has been fulfilled. This is a perfect passive tense. What it means is that something has happened, that, that it, it, it happened to you or for you, and, and its effects are going to be felt into the future. Um, I was trying to think of a, a good analogy. The cat has been let out of the bag. I never understood why people put cats in bags, but the cat has been let out of the bag, right? And once that cat has been let out of the bag, one thing is for sure, you're not getting it back in there. Today, it has been fulfilled. And you know what? They walked out of the synagogue that morning and the Roman soldiers were still standing in the streets. What did he mean? It has been fulfilled. I think what he's saying to us is that the real prison, the real prison of human sinfulness has been broken. That power has been broken. That we can be set free. That we can love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we can love our neighbor as ourselves. Here's the truth. Every one of us, in this room, in my hearing, and everyone that you'll see today was born a criminal. We were born in prison. And maybe you say, but I've never stolen a thing in my life. I believe you. But you have broken a law, the moral law of God. Uh, one of my former professors, Tory Balk, uh, used to say he believes in original sin equally distributed. <laughs> I find that to be true in the people that I've met as well. That we've all been affected with sin and it's been equally distributed among us. And it's permeated every area of our lives and our relationships. And Jesus says, I am announcing freedom to you captives. Freedom so that your affections can be turned towards God and not towards self. That we can set God in God's proper place. No longer making ourselves God.
gods, but making the creator God the true God. Now, every one of us lines our prison cells with different kinds of wallpaper, and some of it's prettier than others. And we can almost begin to believe that it's not a prison. It's, after all, a very nice place to be. But no matter how pretty a prison cell is, it's a prison cell nonetheless. Maybe you know what yours is. Maybe you don't. Maybe you know from whence you've been exiled. Maybe you've tasted of freedom a little bit, but you want more of it. I think that Jesus is saying that the promise of the people of God is freedom. It's real freedom from real prisons of, 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 that are self-made. These prisons of sin and selfishness and, and, and turned in upon ourselves. That there is no delight or happiness in there. The cat's been let out of the bag. You're free if you want it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.